Our reading this morning is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 12. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. Then he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Would you pray with me again this morning? Father, we are grateful for your word, and as we approach it this morning, the request that you taught your disciples to make of you is on our, our minds. You taught us to pray and ask that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and so this morning, we ask that your will would be done in our hearts and in our lives, that you would use your word to accomplish that in us, your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a, a junior high student or a high school student, uh, then you've probably had similar conversations with your kids uh, as I've had with mine. Uh, the specific kind of conversations I'm talking about usually happen uh, right after they've studied, you know, three, four hours for a big chemistry exam, or they've spent three or four hours doing geometry homework, or, or they've studied Native American history again for the sixth year in a row, and they come to you and they say, Dad, why do I have to know this stuff? Why is this important in my life? How am I ever going to use the quadratic formula, Right? Have you had those kind of conversations before? Um, when they come to me with those kind of questions, sometimes I get all theological on them. I mean, they got to get used to that, right? I'm a pastor. And sometimes I'll say, you know what? It's just where God has placed you, and you need to work with all your might. Strive to be the best that you can be in your vocation. Right now, your vocation is a student, so work hard to the glory of God. you got to add that, right? Uh, sometimes I get real cynical. I say, you know what? It's just a hoop you got to jump through, dude. Get through it. Move on. Sometimes it's somewhere in between, and it's a thoughtful response about how studying things that you might not actually ever use practically in your vocation still shape how you think. You know, studying geometry or, or the logic of algebra helps you develop into a, a logical thinker that you can then apply to law or writing or whatever it is that you want to go into. I say those things, but I can empathize with them. 
I remember asking those same questions when I was in junior high and high school and even in college. Why did me, a political science student, have to take biochemistry? Makes no sense. But we do it. Sometimes I think we approach the Bible with those same kind of questions that my kids come to me with. Why? Why is this text here? What am I supposed to do with this? So what? What am I supposed to, how is this supposed to impact my life tomorrow? Or as Francis Schaeffer famously put it, how now shall we live? Those are good questions. They come from a good impulse. We want to obey. We want to see how God's word connects with our day in and day out life. So we ask those kind of questions of of the Bible. The problem is that not every text was meant to answer those kind of questions, though. Some texts aren't there to answer how now shall we live, but instead, how now shall we think? And still other texts are there not to shape our actions or our thoughts, but instead our feelings. How now shall we feel? How or who or why should we love? Should we worship? Should we adore? That's the kind of text I think we're coming to this morning. The transfiguration. One of my favorite theologians, Jonathan Edwards, once said, true religion consists very much in holy affections. This morning, I'm just going to warn you up front. My applications are not going to be the kind of concrete applications that you'll take with you to work tomorrow and say, I'm doing this because of the sermon yesterday. They're going to be more emotive kind of applications. Love, worship, and trust Jesus Specifically, I think this text here is in the Bible to help us see and appreciate the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ so that we will love more deeply, worship more fervently, and trust more confidently. Before we get to the why the passage is here, let's think, examine what's actually happening in this passage. Okay, this passage, this story, these events are recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it's an important story. They felt like it was so important they needed to convey what's happening. Uh, In Mark, this comes right after Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Messiah. In Mark 8, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter got it right. Nailed the nail right on the head. You are the Messiah. And from that point on, Jesus begins to teach them that the Messiah must suffer and die. And he begins to teach them that as disciples, they're going to have to follow him in that. Take up their cross and follow him. Shortly after Peter has confessed Jesus, they come to this high mountain. And Jesus takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up to this high mountain with him. 
The fact that it's happening on a high mountain should kind of clue us in that something special is about to happen. Because high mountains are places where special things happen all throughout Scripture. You can go all the way back to Genesis. And it was on Mount Moriah that God reveals himself to be Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Abraham had walked up that mountain thinking he was going to sacrifice his son Isaac there. But God provided a ram and revealed something of himself on that high mountain. Fast forward to Exodus, and it's Mount Sinai, where God reveals himself in his splendor, in in this cloud and smoke and lightning and thunder, and gives the people the law. Move forward to the time of the kings, and on Mount Carmel, God shows up and shows that he is God Almighty and defeats the prophets of Baal. And just a chapter or two later, it's on Mount Horeb, where God meets with Elijah and speaks to him in a still, small voice, in a whisper. On high mountains, things happen. God shows up in unique ways. And that's what happens here. Jesus is there alone with his disciples, and it says he was transfigured before their eyes. Uh, The word is actually metamorphothe, from which we get our word metamorphosis. He changed. He was transformed. It's the same word that Paul uses when he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. For Jesus, this transformation touched him visibly. He was visibly transfigured before their eyes. So that his clothes shone. I think it's Luke that says they were whiter than lightning. Mark says that they were whiter than anyone could ever bleach them. They were shining. They were radiant. And his face was blindingly bright as God's glory, as Christ's glory was being revealed. Brighter than the sun, one of the gospel writers says. It's reminiscent of Moses When he meets with God on Mount Sinai and he reflects God's glory and it's so bright that people say, please put a veil on it, Moses. This is hurting our eyes. That was a reflected glory. This is Jesus' own glory that they're witnessing and it's a blinding spectacle. And as Jesus is being transfigured, two men show up to speak with him, Moses and Elijah. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham and and David? Well, Moses and Elijah point to Jesus in a unique way. They're, They're both deliverers of God's people. Moses delivered the people from Egypt, and Elijah delivered them from bondage to Baal. But they also represent something. They represent the law and the prophets, And all the law and all the prophets point forward to Jesus. And so they're there, meeting with Jesus, having a conversation with him. And Peter is very frightened by all of this and doesn't quite know what to say. So he says, Rabbi, this is kind of a Peterish thing to say. Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us build some tents for you and for Moses and Elijah. And we can stay here. 
But as Peter is speaking, this cloud envelops the mountain and them. Now clouds have a history in the Old Testament too. Clouds are a representation of God's very presence being there. It was a cloud that guided the people of Israel. A cloud that descended upon Mount Sinai. A cloud that filled the tabernacle, representing the very presence of God. And so there on this mountain of transfiguration, God is present. And from this cloud, a voice says, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now if these three disciples weren't scared before that, now they're terrified. And it says that they fell face down. That's the normal response to being in the presence of God. But when they look up, it says suddenly they were alone with Jesus again. And their mountaintop experience is over, and they begin to walk down with Jesus down the mountain. And he instructs them not to tell anybody about this until he's risen from the dead. And they're questioning, what does this mean, risen from the dead? They don't understand that yet. I don't think we would have either. So that's what happens. Why do Matthew, Mark, and Luke consider this so important that they put it in their Gospels? Why do they take us up to this mountain? Well, they take us up to the mountain the same reason anyone ever goes up for a mountain. For the view. From the top of this mountain, you get a dramatic view of Christ's glory. From the top of this mountain, you can look back and see Christ's glory, the glory he had in eternity past, the glory he had before creation, the glory he had before he veiled it in flesh. Here the disciples are seeing just a glimpse of the Son's glory before he took on humanity and veiled it. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays his high priestly prayer. He says, Father, glorify me with the glory I had before the creation of the world. Here the disciples are getting just a glimpse of that glory. And it's overwhelming. This wasn't their normal experience with Jesus. Their normal experience with Jesus was walking with a man whom they believed to be a great teacher, even the Messiah. But he was fairly ordinary. Have you ever wondered what Jesus looked like? Of course you have, right? You've seen a painting and you wonder, is that really what he looked like? Well, we don't know. It's interesting to me that Virtually none of the gospel writers give us a physical description of Jesus. The best description we have of Jesus comes from a hundred or more than a couple hundred years before he was born, from the prophet Isaiah. He said there was nothing particularly lovely or majestic about him. He'd be ordinary. That was the disciples' regular experience, day in and day out of Jesus. And I could empathize with them why it would be hard to believe that this ordinary man who was a carpenter from Nazareth, from Galilee, was the Messiah, let alone the eternal, glorious 
Son of God. But here Jesus has taken them up this mountain to give them just a peek at the glory that he has had forever. And it's a glimpse of glory that they would never forget. John, who's the only gospel writer that doesn't record these events, still hints at them. In John chapter 1, John says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son of God. And Peter, who is up there, records it in 2 Peter 1. He says, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Up on this mountain, they're able to look back and see the glory that Jesus had before the incarnation. And it changed them. But as we look at this glory, as we contemplate this glory, I hope we can also get a deeper sense of his love for us. Because he willingly set aside that glory for a time, willingly left that divine place of honor and humbled himself out of love. Love for his father and, yes, desire to see his will done, but a deep, profound love for us. In 1936, the United Kingdom was kind of thrown into a a bit of turmoil when King Edward VIII announced his plans to marry uh, Wallace Simpson. Wallace Simpson was not deemed a worthy queen. Maybe it's because she had the name Wallace. I don't know. (laughs) That's that's rough. Um, uh, But she was an American socialite who had been once divorced, was still married at the time that King Edward VIII made this announcement, but was planning her second, was working through her second divorce. And people just didn't deem her worthy of, well, being a queen. Rather than say, okay, I'll find someone more worthy, King Edward VIII renounced his crown so he could marry. And he remained married to Wallace for 35 years. Uh, It's a great story of someone setting aside glory and honor for the sake of love. It falls apart, right, because this story is kind of intermingled with infidelity and adultery and immorality. and, And even if it wasn't for those things, King Edward VIII was leaving an earthly crown and an earthly palace. Jesus was setting aside a heavenly crown and dwelling in the very presence of God the Father in eternal glory, being ministered to by holy angels. They don't compare. But having glimpsed that glory, maybe we can sense a little bit deeper his love for us, that he willingly set that aside to humble himself, to become man, to walk through all the indignities of living, like learning how to walk as a toddler, Like having your voice crack when you're 13. Like being mocked and ridiculed and betrayed and tortured and crucified as a criminal. For love, he did that. And we sense that more 
when we perceive his eternal glory, and the mountain of transfiguration helps us do that. So from this mountain, we get a vantage point where we can see in the distant past and see Christ's glory before it was veiled in humanity. But we can also look forward and see the glory that Christ has as he returns. The glory that he takes back up and brings with him when he, when he comes with all the holy angels and in glory. Jesus had been, just been speaking of that in Mark chapter 8. It was a constant theme of Jesus that the world would see him in all his glory when he returned. Now the disciples got just a little glimpse of it here on the mountain of transfiguration and they fell face down. The Apostle John, later in his life, gets another glimpse of it. As he's receiving the revelation, which becomes our book of revelation, he says, I saw one walking among the seven lampstands, which represent the church. And he says his, his hair was white as wool, and his clothes were radiant. He was wearing a gold sash. His eyes were burning as fire. Even his feet were glowing as bronze that had just come out of the furnace. And John's response was, he fell down as though dead. So overcome with this vision of Christ's glory. Now when we look into the distant past, into eternity past, and we glimpse Christ's glory, it was a glory that was witnessed only by the Godhead and then the angels. But when we look into the future, we see that this glory that Christ has is a glory that will be witnessed by all of creation. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, When I come in my glory with the holy angels, all the nations will be gathered before me. And this is where Paul's vision comes from. Of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Everyone witnesses this glory. How do we respond to that? Worship. That fear, that overwhelming fear that they had will be transformed into worship. Worship the majesty, the shining glory of Christ. But here we're at the verge of one of the most mysterious and to me profound truths in all of Scripture. That this glory is a glory in which we are to share. We're to share in Christ's glory. Listen to just a few verses from the New Testament that highlight this. I know a lot of you are are furious note-takers. I'm going to ask you to not write. Just listen. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 8. He says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed 
in us. Not to us, in us, as we share in Christ's glory. Colossians 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Or 2 Thessalonians 2, but we ought always thank God for you. Because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just Paul. Peter 2 and 1 Peter 1, I'm sorry, in 1 Peter 5, we become partakers of the glory that is going to be revealed. 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us all these precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. From this mountaintop we see Christ's glory We realize it's a glory that he's calling us to share in. That is a vision that needs to capture our minds and our hearts. That is our sea. Did you say sea? I did. What do you mean? I read this quote this week by the author of the famous children's book, The Little Prince. Antoine de Saint-Oxbury. I have no idea if I said it right. It's French. He said, if you want to build a ship, you don't go out and drum up people to collect wood, and you don't assign them tasks and work, but rather to teach them. Teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Teach them to long for it. Give them a vision for the endless immensity of the sea, and then watch them work. They'll be captured by it. This is our sea. To share in Christ's glory. That is our vision that ought to capture us. To compel us. That is our goal. That is our end, our tell us. That is the reason for which we were created, to become partakers of the divine glory. That, in, in one sense, should be our, our gravity, the thing that pulls us forward. You want to live the Christian life, then be enraptured by this vision and let it drive you. Let it consume you. Long for it. And here, it's not intellect that's the key. It's Imagination sanctified imagination. Being able to envision this future that Christ invites us to, that he wants us to participate in. That he laid down his life to allow us to enjoy a very sharing in his glory. We, we need this firmly set in our minds and, and even more in our hearts 
Because this is not a future that we attain to immediately. But like a shipbuilder, after long and arduous labor, the vision from this mountain allows us to see into eternity past and into the glory that comes when Christ reveals it and that we get to participate in. But from here we also see that the line to that future glory is not a straight line. It requires that we walk down the mountain and we go to Jerusalem and we go through Good Friday. This glory for Jesus and his disciples and us means the cross. The path to glory runs straight through the cross. It's no accident, I don't think, that in Mark's gospel, Jesus is talking about the cross right up to the mountain of transfiguration. And on the way down the mountain, he's talking about rising from the dead. On both sides of the mount of transfiguration, there's the cross looming. This glory requires the cross. In the context of the cross, the transfiguration is important because it reminds us of two things. It reminds us that the cross was not a rejection of Jesus by the Father. The cross was not God turning his back on Jesus. The cross was the path to glory. The cross was the Father's will. The cross was Jesus' will as he yielded to the Father. The cross was the Son of God being crucified for us. That has been a massive stumbling block for people through the ages. From the beginning, the very earliest heresy in the church was by a man, Valentinius, who could not wrap his mind around how God the Father would allow his Son to be crucified. But that is at the heart of the gospel. Crucified for us so that we might attain that glory through him. The Mount of Transfiguration reminds us that this is the Son whom the Father loves. It reminds us that on the cross it's not just a good man dying as an example for us. An example of love or of self-sacrifice. It's the King of glory dying for us. The sacrifice is of infinite Worth and value. More than able to cover all my sins and all the world's sins. The cross is not just a good man suffering, but the, the king of glory who walked the path of the cross for glory. William Penn, from whom Pennsylvania is named, wrote a book called No Cross, No Crown. That's true for Jesus. The way for him to re-attain that glory that he had from eternity past was through the cross. And it was through the cross that we also can achieve that crown. Peter didn't get it. Peter's up on the mountaintop basking in glory and he's saying, this is good. It's good we're here. Let's stay here on the mountaintop. Let's build some booths, some tents. And Jesus says, no, we got to go back down. 
Let this capture your heart. You've seen a glimpse of it now, but now we've got to go back down. Back into life. Back into toil. Back to Jerusalem. We have to go back out into life, into difficulty. No doubt about it. But will we endure for the joy that is set before us? Will we, now that we've caught a glimpse of this glory, be willing to lose our life so that we can save it? Take up our cross and follow Christ to glory. There's a, a famous study, and I know we've, we've referenced it more than once here on a Sunday morning. The Stanford Marshmallow Study Experiment. Well, they had a group of kids, and they promised the kids, you can have this marshmallow, you can eat it right now if you want. But if you wait 15 minutes, I said 15, 15 minutes, you get two. And they were, they tracked the results. A lot of kids ate the marshmallow right then. I mean, you know, what's that saying? A bird in the hand's worth two in the bush. So they ate the marshmallow right then and they enjoyed it. Others watched the clock and waited and bided their time and were patient and delayed gratification and were rewarded with two. And they tracked these, these kids and those who were able to defer gratification, to be patient, proved to be more successful on the SATs, with their GPAs, in college, even with things like body mass index, basic health. It's a life skill, being able to see the future and persevere and endure and say, no, not now, but later. And it's a great Christian virtue. Uh, Are we willing to endure hard workouts for the flat abs? Hard workouts for the, the hope of Athletic glory and home runs or touchdowns or faster times in the pool. Yeah, we, we do that well. Do we endure lean times where we save in hopes of a comfortable retirement? Do we endure the stress of exams for the hope of a good-paying job? Will we endure temptation, set aside self, take up our cross, risk ridicule, deprivation, maybe even persecution for the guarantee of eternal glory that is so great, so beyond comprehension that even the slightest glimpse of it compelled the disciples to fall on their faces? From the mountaintop, you get to see the eternal glory. And now we're called to walk back down the mountain and endure. Endure for the guarantee of future glory. Now the application. I warned you, it's not concrete. I don't know what you will do differently tomorrow. But I hope glimpsing Christ's glory 
will compel you to love more deeply. To love him who set aside that glory out of love for you. I hope that this truth warms your heart to him. And you love him more deeply. And you worship and adore him more earnestly. Don't allow yourself just to be consumed with thoughts of Christ's glory. Pray that you'll sense it. That you'll feel it. That you'll have some experience of Christ's glory that will drive you to your knees in worship and adoration and trust. Trust that the trials we face in this life, no matter how heavy, how crushing, are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. On the mountain of transfiguration, we get just a glimpse of Christ's glory. But glimpsing glory changes you. It changed Moses. I know it changed Peter and James and John. And we're promised that it will change us also. Let me just close with these words from 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we're, we're grateful for your word. We don't always know what to do with it, so we come to it and we say, what now? How do we live this? What does it do to us or for us? But even in those times of confusion when we don't see the clear applications of a text, your spirit is working in us. And we pray that he be working now to enlarge our hearts with a deeper, more vibrant love for you. That you would help us to worship more sincerely from hearts that are set aflame by a vision of your glory. And that you would help us to trust that the things that we go in, through in this life, the things we set aside aren't worth comparing to the glory that is ours in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, will you help us in these things? Will you help us in our unbelief? Will you strengthen us in our love? Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.